baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Eight forty-six, fourteen, and before nine. Quickly to Ramon Antonio Vargas, editor reporter at the Guardian, part two uh, of a three-part series on the bankruptcy uh, court stacking the odds in the Archdiocese of New Orleans's favor over abuse claims was published over the weekend, and he's here to tell us about it. Good morning, Ramon. How are you, Ramon? You got us on mute, maybe? I'll say good morning. That's Thank right. you for having me on. That's right. No worries at all. Look, I must stay out of the way because this is a kind of complicated thing. It goes to, I think, bankruptcy law, how it protects corporations and hurts victims, but especially when you're dealing about bankruptcy law as it relates to a nonprofit like the church, correct? Yes. So very, very, I guess, basically, uh, probably the most telling kind of quote, I think, in in the series and the three parts of the guardian um it i think that the most telling part about that is one expert who told us that probably a bankruptcy judge's strongest tool in a bankruptcy case is to force a uh, a debtor to to liquidate its assets right mm-hmm. um but the church is a nonprofit, right it is a tax-exempt nonprofit, and that is something that the church that the bankruptcy court does not have the ability to do, right? And so what does that mean? That's obviously a huge bargaining chip when it comes to, you know, the primary purpose and, and the church equivalent me would, would quibble with me on this, I think. But um, I think from the outside looking in, the primary purpose of this is to, uh, to, to dispose of the pending abuse claims against the church, right? And we're talking about, <clears throat> we're talking about 500 claimants uh, on that. Uh, obviously, the goal, the church, the claimants are trying to get as much or as make the value of those claims as high as possible. The church is heading in the opposite direction, right? Um, it's really interesting. I think for the most part, the strategy that I think the church was hoping to uh, enter the the case with was, look, these claims have been filed way past key deadlines. Um, we can take a position of like, look, this is what we're giving you. If you want to try to take us to court on it, you might get nothing because your your claims expired on its face. You just filed it too late. 2021, the state legislature passes a law that eliminates those deadlines. Um, that law has been upheld, and that gave victims, I think, much stronger footing because no longer is it just presumed that their claims are filed late. Now, there were other arguments about, you know, why those deadlines were pushed back. Uh, for example, allegations of a cover-up would push those, would restart those deadlines and, and things like that, just briefly. But that is sort of that is sort of something that's kind of in, on the victim side at the moment, as long as that law is upheld constitutionally, then, um, then it becomes kind of everything is up in the air. To me, this is just my opinion and my educated guess is that that explains why it is that we're three years into uh, into this bankruptcy without a settlement in, involved. As the uh, and meanwhile, there's this fight over the the constitutionality of the law that suspended filing deadlines as it relates to 
historical effects of these cases. Um, and But to kind of get back to it, the church becomes such a powerful kind of entity in bankruptcy court because they kind of get all of the they kind of get all of the advantages that a corporation in, you know, Chapter 11 bankruptcy gets as it reorganizes its books. But they also aren't kind of like susceptible because they're a tax-exempt nonprofit and because they're a religious institution. And the separation of church and state um, kind of concept that the United States is, is kind of as part of its core, it, it becomes very – it's typically you can't really compel them to do anything, but then they also are protected in a way that, that a company is. Judge Meredith Graybill, I looked it up. I believe she's Presbyterian, if I got that right, or Episcopalian, one of the two. So she's not Catholic, just for people that are wondering, because it seems as though she's been very friendly to the archdiocese as it relates to her rulings. And it seems some could say that—and look, this judge has forgotten more about law and bankruptcy law than I'll ever even begin to know. I realize that. But it does seem as though—boy, the, 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 it just seems like the—, the secrecy option, or at least the the gag order or whatever we're talking about here, confidentiality, is given precedent over victims' rights in a way. Talk us through all of that and what happened with the fine to the lawyer and then a meeting that was set up with the archbishop and survivors that were kicked off of a committee, right? Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Yeah, so, whew, all right, let's try to take that one by one. Um, one of the central kind of disagreements with the bankruptcy is that, and look, this is the way that it's been put to me, um, is that I, I, and precedent in the federal system here in, like, the federal district that includes New Orleans, right, my best understanding is that records are presumed to be public at, and, and documents that become part of court proceedings are presumed to be public unless they're shown to be otherwise. In this proceeding, <clears throat> obviously there's a lot of information, and some of my reporting is shown, and some of the Guardian's reporting, and my partner, you know, Jason Barry's reporting, and, and David Hammer's reporting at WWL um, has sort of shown that, uh, that like, what, what those records, like, contain, right? Um and that there are allegations that they, they claim they they outline allegations received against abusive priests that the church then waited a very long time ever to report or to publicly acknowledge, right? And um, but I think when the bankruptcy kind of began, it was it kind of entered with the presumption that absolutely everything in the proceeding was considered confidential unless shown otherwise. So it was kind of like backwards. And obviously, there's been. Um, I think that when the the, the fines of the attorney comes in, is um, we were able to establish that at one point, an attorney for nearly 80 victims, uh, 80 abuse claimants, reported to Brother Martin that its chaplain, and and this attorney learned this through the discovery process of the bankruptcy, that its chaplain had a 
substantial stain in his past, right? Like a serious, a serious problem in his past. Now, because of the bank, because of the secrecy order, <clears throat> and I know this to be true from from reading, you know, Brother Martin's, that's Brother Martin High School's own kind of uh, statements in court uh, that I was able to obtain, even though they were sealed. Um, that they were able to, that they indicated that, like, look, we, like, he would not, the attorney only told us that he had something in his past, but the attorney, because of the bankruptcy secrecy order, did not elaborate. That's a soft flurry of communications in which, best I can tell, the archdiocese acknowledges, yes, this chaplain, the late Paul Hart, at some point admitted to what the archbishop's own advisors considered to be molestation of an of a minor right the the church definition at the time of this determination anyone under 18 is a minor but at the time that the misconduct happened back in the early 90s the church's definition of such was 16. and on that technicality the archbishop overruled his own board's finding and he advised other he also had other advisors who were giving this advice i just want to be clear about that but essentially he goes he gets another opinion that says, well, he technically didn't commit, you know, abuse of a minor because at the time this happened, 16 was the age of majority under church law. Anyway, because that information kind of got out, and then obviously that I caught wind of it, I published a story about it, and uh, ultimately, briefly, the judge found that it was a violation of the secrecy order. It was put on the shoulders of the attorney, Richard Trahant. And that resulted in a $400,000 fine that commentators from outside of the proceeding, um, and these are these are very intelligent, accomplished attorneys, who find it to be almost unheard of. That no one that we spoke with has been, oh, I've seen something like that. A lot of people drew parallels to the fine that had been given to Donald Trump for uh, his alleged violation of a um, protective order barring disparaging comments about judicial staff in one of his trials. Um, and that had been a $15,000 fine. Now, Ramon, is, we're going to have to leave it here for now, but I, I want you to come back. We're going to spend an hour with you to talk about this because I think it's very important. Um, let's talk about, like, the New Orleans six degrees of separation. That plaintiff's attorney, Trahant, is Paul Hart's cousin, right? No, no, no. He's the uh, cousin of the principal of Brother Mark. Principal of Brother That's what it is. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Ramon, for clearing that up. Uh, we'll We'll pick it up again next time you come on, I promise, because I think this is very important. 856 Traffic Now, WWL. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.